Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Welcome to Life List, everybody. Good to be back with you. This is George Armistead. I am here with my co-host, Alvaro Jaramillo. Alvaro, how are you today? Doing pretty well. Uh, different time zone, though, for me now. I'm in Spain, everybody. Wow. Man, that sounds exotic and cool. How is it? it well, you know, everybody speaks Spanish here, which is interesting. <laughs> uh, never no, um, guessed. Yeah, never. So that that uh, that alone makes it different, right? Different and and um, exotic. But oh yeah, food, birds, all sorts of things. You know that we can talk about later and. Uh, what it's like to travel here and see what's going on in this sort of migratory period um, here, which is, you know, just matches up to the migration period in in North America, of course, being in the same hemisphere. But it's pretty intense here at times, the migration. Yeah, man, that's, uh, that is. I, uh, and it's, it is, like you say, it's getting going here as well. I was out this morning and Starting to see some songbirds here uh, moving through, so even in some pretty good numbers. Um, Cape May is kind of always my barometer for bird migration. I, mean, I think it is for a lot of people, um, especially in the east here in the mid-Atlantic in particular. And I know they've had at least one or two days where they've counted over a 1,000 American red starts um, in, uh, in morning flight there. So yeah, the birds, they are moving. Fall migration is happening. We even had ourselves a September cold front pass through yesterday, an increasingly rare thing in this well, day and age. Yeah. I mean, September was always the, the fulcrum or whatever, you know, when things changed and I guess now it's October. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of that way. It's like I now... I, I do kind of, I, it has kind of shifted to me where real fall begins in October, whereas, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was like, you know, you get past Labor Day here and bird migration picks up, you, you're ready to rock. Now, you never kind of know from year to year. Last year was real good, September, a lot of cold fronts. Um, but, uh, and this year's off to a good start. But, but yeah, it's true. Generally, they, the cold fronts stack up a lot closer together. Uh, more and more as you get towards October. You, you know, um, I one of the things I always remember, like living in in the east in in Ontario, was that some birds were really early. Of course, you know, shorebirds go through early and so forth. But yellow warbler would basically that the main movement would go through before the first few days of September. So actually, mostly in the last week of August, and mm -hmm. they were really early, and they were gone, you know? And in the West, yellow warblers go all the way through September and into early October. Totally different. Same species, wow. totally different. Some of those things blow me away about how, you know, you know, we might have even talked about in the past, there's some things like Wilson's warbler, orange crown warbler that are really common in the West and not so common in the East. And even their timing is different. Um, yes. There's a lot going on in migration that that we are beginning to sort of piece together sort of the bigger picture. But even within a species, stuff varies so much. It's, it's crazy. It's interesting. It's amazing. It is. It's, it, it, it really is. And for, I always, I find my, I know some people piece this together and I got to look into it more, but I always notice there's like a pretty big pulse of American Robins right around now, like late August, early September, but you know the the really big movements here are usually in seems like in November, um, but you know there again that's one species and you're talking about there's there's definitely a couple different peaks going on here, um, and I, I think they have some ideas about why that is, um, but yeah something like yellow warbler, you know we get those here sometimes in November and December in the mid Atlantic lingering even occasionally past uh, Christmas into the following year. But as you say, the bulk move through. I mean, we're, I'm, we're sort of seeing almost the tail end of the, the main movement of them here already here first week of September. Yeah. And, and of course, when you, you know, you have these weirdos that hang out, in, you know, late, it's not even um, crazy to think they could actually be a Western one, you know, when you have that kind of thing going on too. So, so you, you know, 
who knows? There's even that, you know, how do you know a vagrant with when it's within a species that's regularly occurring, you know, like, you know, yeah. how, how do you identify a, a Nashville warbler from the West versus one from the East or the Calaveras warbler? Yes, exactly. Right. That, that was, as you were starting Calaveras. down this road, that was, <laughs> that was one of the ones I was thinking of exactly was, you know, we, yeah. we see one people find them in Christmas bird counts um, Nashville warblers. And it's like, well, which one are we really looking at here? Is this an Eastern one, the tongue out, or is it one of the Western ones? You know, yeah. I, I bet you a good chunk of the time it is the Calaveras, uh, Nashville's route West. Yeah. The, the, the Western ones are a little duller. They're sort of a tad towards the Virginia's warbler look and they wag mm-hmm. their tail more often. Although Eastern Nashville's do flick their tail a little bit, but it's more consistent. And, and the other thing is, you know, this name, this, that's an old name for the Ridgeway eye subspecies, Calaveras warbler. And I think, you know, properly, you sort of have to dress up like Zorro or something like that and say, <laughs> you know, yes, it is the Calaveras warbler. You know, you Calaveras, Calaveras, you know, that'd be good if every time you saw it, you just said, Hey, everybody, Calaveras warbler, you know, like <laughs> nod approvingly after you've said it. Yes. Yeah. You know, like tip your hat, you know, <laughs> you get the visual. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so oh, from man. Calaveras to Stormville, you were in Stormville. I've I've been I've been reading from afar, uh, tragic, um, yeah. all sorts of all sorts of tragic issues, and also bird related stuff going on. You know, f- relating to to the uh, hurricane and tropical storm. Yeah, here in in Philly and up to New York. I mean, uh, the, this hurricane Ida has come through, and I got to admit, I I I knew they were forecasting a good amount of rain. But I had no idea what was coming here. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it's, it's it, for Philly alone, you know, New York got smashed with a bunch of rain too and flooding. Um, here in Philly, it's the worst flooding in over 150 years, worst flooding since 1869. Uh, and it really was just utterly shocking to see. The Schuylkill River, you know, place that I've been hanging out my whole life, just it looked like it was three or four times the size it normally was, covering roadsides. There were traffic lights that were, you know, there was just a, a foot or so of space between the bottom of the, you know, the, the, the top of the light there and the beginning of the water. There was one real scary image of uh, one of the bridges full of cars, you know, this Green Lane Bridge. And uh, gosh, it's just amazing that there wasn't more tragedy than there already was. And there was a significant amount here, um, you know, people losing homes and and, uh, and 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 just a ton of damage. But yeah, I mean, this the, the lasting image I have is that Green Lane Bridge with the water just looked like it was like maybe, I don't know, a meter below the top of the the bridge practically and the bridge itself has got all is loaded with vehicles, people driving across it. And and you wouldn't know, you know, if you were in your car necessarily, you couldn't necessarily see it. And I was like, good Lord, if it would not have mm. taken much to just, you know, for that to have been a complete disaster. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been pretty crazy. Um, pretty wild to see here. And, uh, Luckily for my for my family, everybody's been in a good place and is and is good. But there are a lot of folks um, really reeling and and devastated by the storm from Spain and, and partially due to the uh, the fact that we're just going to getting sort of the highlights or the most you know um, important news or whatever. What what happened is to for us it was like okay the hurricane's gone through Louisiana they've lost power in New Orleans and you know lots of damage but you know gosh you know it seemed like this could have been a lot worse 
um, you know, people were sort of bracing for, I don't know. Um, it, it seemed yeah, like, like Katrina was, style hurricane, even, yeah, even worse. Yeah. yeah. It could have been even worse because it was really powerful. And then we sort of said, okay, well it's done. Um, and yeah. then we had no idea that this whole other, cause you know, we're not getting the forecast or this or that, or, you know, nothing. And then suddenly, you know, you sort of wake up and, and read what happened in New York initially. This is what the news came out internationally. And it was like, what? You know, like, yeah. uh, I was not prepared for that. So I was actually shocked at at the Northeastern issue, you know, because I, I'd been kind of prepared for Louisiana. You know, I'd, yes. I, and, and honestly, it kind not of too different. Yeah, that was, that was not too different from my mentality. And I'll tell you what, it caught city officials here completely unprepared. Um, I couldn't believe the roads that hadn't been shut down. You know, I, I got up early. It was ready to go birding. I turned on the news radio, KYW news radio here, which always has like road information. And I was like, and I was like, my God, like every major road is flooded. You know, I, I went down my little road, you know, which is still a busy road that kind of leads you into the, the major highways. And it, there was like three big trees down and I couldn't get across that. So I had to kind of weave around and you start to realize like, oh, this is, this is a big deal. And, um, uh, and then they started talking about some of the stuff going on. And of course the, the lasting images from here in Philadelphia is we have 676, the Vine Street Expressway, which goes right through the heart of Philadelphia, kind of s- subterranean style a little bit, but it's open and it just looks like a canal right now. It's, hmm. it's, I don't know how much water, but like, you know, the, those big green highway signs, like there's only like, I don't know, five feet of water below the bottom of those signs and the top of the water. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, Weird. Yeah. And, and, and in the sort of bird news, you know, I, I, I saw there were pretty amazing um, records actually in Florida of all places. And yeah, I, I assume that it was sort of the arm of the storm that, you know, that was sort of on the east side that brought some of these things out there rather than the, all the crazy birds being out in Louisiana that, you know, sort of for the storm chaser crowd. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and people have different opinions about, you know, they see birders like us getting really excited about some of these birds that turn up after these, you know, incredibly strong storms that do wreak incredible damage or life-threatening or take lives in some cases. And, and I remember, I was. I wrote an article about chasing um, Hurricane Isabel way back when. I think that's what we actually titled it. Someone said, "Yeah, you should have titled that paper Perverts Pursuing Petrels," and uh, <laughs> and I was like, "Well, it's, I feel like it's not entirely fair. Like we we're aware of how bad the storm is. We're not like we're not taking glee in other people's misfortunes, um, but it's more. I think Scott Widensell said it was like you're taking meteorological lemons and." making ornithological lemonade. And certainly that's kind of what you saw from these folks in Florida who, you know, luckily for them, they were pretty much spared the, the, you know, ill effects of the hurricane. But man, like one guy photographs wedge-tailed shearwater, you know, a nice mm-hmm. pale morph. And, uh, and that was at Fort DeSoto, I guess. And then there was at Pensacola, they had somebody, some rehabber took in a, a bowler's petrel. Um, yeah. So those are pretty crazy birds, two pretty crazy birds for any storm, uh, anywhere, anytime, really around here in U.S. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And you wonder exactly, you know, the bulwer's petrel makes sense. Like they're out there in the Atlantic, but the, yeah. the witch, you know, tailed shearwater, second one this year in the Atlantic. Yeah, what's up um, with that, man? What's what's, what's Alvaro's theory on that one? I don't know, but the storm doesn't actually explain it. It no. it's sort of the it suggests that something else is going on that the storm kind of is revealing to us. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like maybe they're they moved into the Atlantic this year. Maybe they're sort of expanding, kind of like Manx Shearwater has been expanding towards the Pacific. Um, right. I yeah. don't know. 
But that is weird because, you know, Wedgetail Shearwater being closest in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific to the Atlantic, that should have been a once-in-a-lifetime bird, yet we have two in one year. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a mind blower. Um, you know, and, and like, I think there was some, there was some um, speculation on how it would have gotten there. And I guess the logical way would be around the Cape of Good Hope from um, from South Africa, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, cause otherwise, you know, like Max Shearwaters, you, you know, you could picture them getting around Cape Horn and, you know, and then all bets are off. And of course now we know they're, they're routine in big numbers down there off Argentina. Um, mm-hmm. didn't, I don't know when that was discovered, but I know it was relatively recently. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this wedge-tailed shearwater thing is pretty funky, man. Yeah, it it, it almost suggests, you know, because these storms begin sort of off the Canary Islands. Um, maybe they're, and you know, if they're going to entrap anything, it's going to be through that path from the Canary Islands to North America. And there should be no wedge-tailed shearwaters there. So maybe there are. <laughs> yeah. And maybe there yeah. are now and there didn't used to be. So who, yeah, who's maybe out they'll there start, checking? Maybe some they'll start turning up like on some of those Macaronesian seabird colonies. Someone will find a wedge tail hanging out, coming in. That would be pretty fascinating. If so, ever had Macaronesian macaroni and cheese? Yeah, that'd be. <laughs> I have it every that'd be day. the place to have it. Talking about <laughs> it's right. Very good cheese. <laughs> Yeah, that's where it comes from, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right, macaroni. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, storms, crazy stuff. You know, a bunch of us hopped on a Zoom a couple weeks ago thinking that uh, Hurricane Henri was going to really bring birds to New England. And it looked it looked like a pretty safe storm in terms of flooding and that it was going to be weakening as it landed and that it would be fairly safe getting around and that it, but it still looked like it would hold birds. And that one really didn't pan out to, to have many birds for people on land. Um, but I'll tell you the organization that went into getting folks coordinated for that was, was fascinating. People were ready, you know, for these storms now before it was just like whatever people saw was lucky. And now it's, there's, there's some real interesting coordination going on. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I get your whole uh, thought process on, on the fact that it, it seems weird to be enjoying, you know, some level of the, these storms that are so damaging and disasters yet on the, on the other hand, I think, you know, that we, we enjoy natural things. We and yes. you know, I would, I would love to see a, a, a tornado. I don't. I've never seen a proper tornado. I would love to see one. I don't want to see it over anything. I want to see it over a field. You know, um, right? But I, you don't, I don't want to know. see it destroying something. You just want to right. see the phenomenon existing. The, the phenomenon, exactly. It's there's an element of you know being interested in natural history that you become interested in weather and you want to see weather. That is unusual, and it can be it can be as simple as a cloud. You know, you see a lenticular cloud over a Patagonian mountain, and there's a process that creates that that's unique and different. And you're like, "Wow, that's a cool thing!" And I've seen that, you know. And I, um, there, it's the same with uh, tremors, earthquakes. I think people, birders, sort of. You know, naturalists might say, I want to sort of at least feel what that's like. You know, of course, um, mo- most tremors are pretty benign, but uh, some aren't. And, yeah. uh, I, you know, I, I, I think, I think there's an argument that can be made for the fact that these are products of nature that are worthy of, of some level of, of wow, you know? Yes. Um, and it's just too bad that. It's it's involved in human tragedy as well, and yeah. we should plan in the future for you know getting places up to speed and up to par with 
dealing with these things rather than just letting them happen to people and often people who are poor, you know? So let's face it. That's the other element that, that happens that's uh, problematic. Yeah, no, it's well said. I mean, uh, and, and like I, I think I started to try to say this and kind of got lost on my track, which I do at times. But yeah, the city was really unprepared here for these, the flooding here. And like they just weren't shutting down roads as fast as you would have thought. You would have thought they'd have shut down the Green Lane Bridge. It was amazing to me that some of the stuff took as long as it did. Schools were closing at 9.30, 10 in the morning after parents already dropped off their kids and were like, do you know what we went through to get the school, the kids here? This is ridiculous. But And, and as you say, I think... Um, yeah, being prepared is, is important, but also having sympathy, empathy for people that just want to witness the raw power of the earth and, and mother nature and, and to absorb the, you know, the immense power of these weather events, what they mean in the short term and in the long term, how they shape landscapes, um, yeah, there's a lot to absorb. And I think they also, they're humbling experiences in many ways, but also remind you that sometimes a lot of your, a lot of your worries and preoccupations may be pretty small when you start thinking about them in kind of geological time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's geo, geo, that's, yeah, that's sort of the way to relax. Just think about everything in ge- geological time. Cause then you're like, Oh, you know, <laughs> You know, all these things going on, they're nothing in geological time. <laughs> they totally live a Zen life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's working like for me, man. Yeah. George's geological time Zen out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's a good life strategy, but uh, it's working yeah. okay so far. <laughs> well, Alvaro, what I would like to know is... You are in Spain. What are you seeing? What are you doing? I would love to be in Spain traveling around with Alvaro Jaramillo, listening to Spanish birds and eating Spanish food. What is going on over there? Where are you right now? I am I am pretty much at the Strait of Gibraltar, you know, in in a little countryside inn where we're oh, you know. 20 minute drive from maybe 30 minute drive from the town of Tarifa, which is the southernmost point of Europe, right on the strait. And uh, the strait is, um, and Tarifa, there's sort of a set of mountain, like low mountains that kind of come down towards this point. And if, if, if in your mind you think of Gibraltar, like the stone of Gibraltar, the British. Enclave. Yeah, I think of like those prudential insurance commercials. You know? Yeah, yeah. The Gibraltar is actually in in from that. Like it's it's not at the tip, which is it's interesting to me. It's sort of on the east side of the peninsula and inside a bit. So it's it's actually kind of sheltered from certain winds. Um, wind is a big thing here. Um, wind comes from the east or the west, and sometimes it's ferocious. It's a great place if you're a kite surfer. This is like the land of kite surfing. But um, the strait is got so many things going on. So there's ship traffic going in and out from the Atlantic to the um, to the to the Mediterranean. You have really a I think it's like I want to say 16 kilometer stretch of water between you and Africa. And then you have the issue of the birds coming down from all parts of Europe um, and especially storks and raptors who, who sort of really need to think about how they're going to cross this big stretch of water, congregating and massing up in the, in the narrowest point. And it is crazy. You know, it's like a, and, and to me, the, the fact that the ships are going and the birds are going, it's, it's like a highway, you know, it's like a human highway and a bird highway all, all together. And it's between yeah. continents and there's, you can sit there and drink your vino tinto and your, you know, um, sheep Tempranil. cheese. Yeah. All, yeah. It, and it's, it's this kind of place where you can sort of sit back and sort of watch and, um, and, and just sort of enjoy this, 
the situation. And it also changes day to day depending on the on the wind. So you have, you know, you have these poniente or levante winds, depending on which side they're coming from, and the and the migration shifts on the peninsula depending on it. And even what species might be involved will depend on how what's going on to the north, you know. So you start paying attention like to everything. So there was there's actually some storms in northern spain and and france you know last few days and there's some flooding up there and that that slowed the movement of honey buzzards and then they were sort of stacked up you know like and then the dam broke today you know this morning we saw you know three thousand honey buzzards in i don't know an hour and a half and it was crazy just just a stream of honey buzzards well two days ago it was black kites booted eagles and um, and masses of uh, short-toed snake eagles just going mm. through, you know, and very few honey buzzards. And to just watch it shift like that. Then the afternoon um, heat starts sort of building up, and um, and then the white storks start coming through. You know, yeah, flocks of white. Storks. We we actually big, a little big late. kettles of them, right? Basically, it's yeah. like they're like raptors, just these big kettles of those white storks. Yeah, we we're a little late at this time for we're really timed for the honey buzzer migration. So we're getting sort of the last of the storks. But yeah, it's still, you know, eighty here, sixty there, you know, uh fifty over there. Um, so it's still a lot of storks and the black storks are beginning beginning to come through. No, um, that's cool. Eh, oof, you know, it it's just pretty amazing. And in the West, you know, far west, we don't have any hawk migration that it's at this level. And um it, it it's it's just neat you know and you and these honey buzzards they're the craziest creatures you know they're they're a raptor and they they get up all the way up to northern europe they they actually raid bee and wasp nests for grubs so they right they, that's why they call them honey buzzards right because they, right. they raid yeah yeah and and people used to see them you know with with um um, honeycombs, you know, sort of hanging off the talons, you know, as they flew by and they figured, oh, they're feeding on honey. But in fact, they're, they're feeding on the grubs, on the protein. I'm mm-hmm. sure they get a little sweetness there. Yeah, they probably dip the grubs in a little honey. Who, who wouldn't, you know, I mean, sure. A little extra carbo there, some complex <laughs> carbo for the ride. Yeah. And they, they have a, a funny looking face. If you ever see one up, up close in a, you know, photograph. Yeah, they got a weird, for, for a raptor, they do. They get a funny expression. Yeah. yeah, and I, it's part of it is that there's there's some bare skin and also these really super small scale like feathers that protect the bird from stings. So hmm. they're such a crazy raptor, like they're almost like nothing else. And because they're insect eaters, they gotta go all the way south, you know, like leave Europe big time in winter and head down into sub-Saharan Africa. They go into tropical African regions, and if if you start thinking new world they're sort of like the swainson's hawk of yeah of the old world in that they're sort of this insect specialist and they have mm-hmm. to go long distance and have amazing crazy migrations i mean broadwing's another one now they're they're more of a frog eater but again you know winter not too good for herps up in canada yeah. so the broadwings have to get out like way down get into the tropics and so just to think these honey buzzards you know they who knows they could have been coming from bulgaria or wherever you know even russia and they're migrating through here and all of them that choose to go in this this part of europe rather than you know heading um heading to you know other crossings that they may take are going to go through this little narrow point right here near Tarifa. So it's mm-hmm. it's amazing. It's like really being on the highway and the high, you know, uh, it's, it's great to see. And then, you know, masses of beaters will go through, you know, like 50, 60 Oof. beaters. You you hear them overhead. Like, yeah, you know, that's what I remember. And, yeah. Yeah. You, you, they give those little kind of like kind of chirp warp. They're kind of like warp, warp. Right. And then they're like, yeah. And you, they, they kind of like, they kind of bubble up on you before you even know it. And all of a sudden you look up and there's, you know, a dozen or three dozen of them circling. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, what's wild about beaters is, you know, they, they're really sort of swallow like when they fly and they're, they're in migrating these groups. 
whenever the bee eaters go through, they're always with swifts. So mm. they seem to migrate together. Like they're, and these are common in pallet swifts, sometimes alpine swifts. And mm-hmm. they, they, they kind of migrate together. And I wonder, like, are they following like a ball of insects or something? Or Right. That or aerial just, plankton. They're just like, yeah. they're like getting right on after it. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, they definitely go together. Like they, they correlate. Like you probably could do like some statistical thing. It's like, yep. Beaters and swifts. That's, so um, they're at funny? Gibraltar. We talked about bees and honey in one. <laughs> one Pretty good. I just, I just noticed that. <laughs> yeah, that's that was, that was a nice tie, effortless tie in there. Well done. I know. Yeah. Look at that. Getting good at this this podcasting thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the hearing you talk about this, I did series of Morocco tours years ago, um, and I remember being in Tangier, just across from where you are now, the other side, and seeing the arrival. It, it was always in September when I would go, and seeing the arrival of these. Especially, I remember the storks and the honey buzzards. Um, And, you know, people talk about Cape May being a funnel for migration, you know, really captures birds. But it seems to me, you look at the map over there, and that really seems like a serious funnel there. Do a lot of the birds really follow that bridge of land? Or do they take off at various points and cross the water kind of all around there? Or is it pretty concentrated? I, I think for some species it's super concentrated, but um, you know if you're thinking of migratory, you know, chiff chaffs or something, uh, I'm not sure that anybody knows, you know, how broad the movement is, uh, how concentrated. But I I bet you get much more volume here than you do if you went out towards you know France, you know, south mm-hmm. of France, through some of the broader um, areas of the Mediterranean. And then um, I'm sure that, you know, Greece and some of the islands, the, there's, there's obviously some hopping through there, you know, that, that's, that's been documented. Um, yes. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm sure it's, it's concentrated for all migrants, but uh, it, it's visible for the, for the raptors, storks, bee eaters, and some of the swallows, swifts and so forth that you're, you're seeing there. It's, yeah, I would uh, bet for those honey buzzards, they 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 need a thermal pretty quick. Maybe when they get to the other side, so they're probably especially concentrated. I would guess. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's and you know the other thing about honey buzzards too, and it's a little bit like some of our raptors, like swains and hawks and so forth, is that they each one of them is really different looking. Like so, there's really pale ones and dark morphs and yeah. intermediates and juveniles, and so you, you're looking at these flocks and it's like. Every one of them looks like a little, it's a different one of the little chocolates in the chocolate box, you know? Yeah. <laughs> They'll have the same shape. And once you get the shape down, that's one thing. But then you, you almost get mesmerized if you look in the, the kettles of rising raptors with the look of these things, you know, that they, there's like some that have more scaling on the breast, others less. And some, you know, it, it you, you, you just sort of like go, wow, you know, and, and this is, you know, the other thing about being here is that yesterday we went out on boats right into the middle of the the strait to look at birds and whales uh, and just had a great time watching cetaceans, you know, striped dolphins and common dolphins, bottlenose dolphins, longfin pilot whales, and, and Balearic shearwaters, and both types of, of cori shearwaters, the coris and the scopoles. Um, Spicoli, as we call them, you know, like fast times, <laughs> fast times fans out there. <laughs> yeah, what Sean Penn's finest role? I, I think so. I don't think anybody yeah. could have predicted he was going to be such a good actor, but there he was, <laughs> Jeff Spicoli. Yeah, forever a legend. I know. I mean, I was describing to somebody who was, you know, didn't know about. Jeff Spicoli, I said, you know those black and white vans that you see kids still wearing? It's like, it's because of that movie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. They'll slip on he, black and white vans. He was like such the wonderful idiot slacker, you know? I know. We we all <laughs> wish we could have been him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a birding. There are sort of birding Jeff Spicolis out there. You know, I won't. Oh, you got to name names. names now. Come on. I'm not going to yeah. name names, but the, the birding... <laughs> 
the burning bum, you know, um, um, motif is, 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 is out there. Um, you know, it's not just ski bums and all that. There's, there's definitely oh, for sure. Yeah. Going from biological job to job, basically trying to see a bunch of birds and living a life of nature enjoyment. It's, you know, I don't think you should call those people bums. I think they're just smart. <laughs> yeah, they're just living life as it should be lived, probably. But yeah, I definitely, I've always thought that there should be, we all love our field guides and we love identification and classification. And I think there should be like a field guide to the birders. You know, there's, there's, there's some, there's some real types. Um, and uh, if we have the capacity to uh, make fun of ourselves, then, Yet, uh, you know, the old, British classic, little um, the Little Black Bird book by Bill. Yeah, Arden. that's one of your favorites. I know it yeah. had the a Bilotti. field guide to the birders actually in it. Oh, I yeah. didn't know. I actually have a copy of that, but I, don't, I didn't remember that part. Yeah, there was the the stringer, of course. I think. Oh yes, um, we know that one. Yeah, there was. Uh, oh, there were a few others. Like there was sort of the, the sharply dressed, um, posh kind of birder. I think they called the dude. Mm-hmm. If I remember mm-hmm. right, and uh, yeah, there was sort of the standard birder type with long hair, and you know that was sort of the the archetype of that nineteen seventies eighties British birder, you know, sort of. Yeah, I feel like there's sort of like a weird parallel with some of the California birders during that time as well. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it's a actually historically important book. You know, if some of these words that birders use today that they they were first sort of introduced to the North American lexicon through Bill Oddie's Little Black Bird Book. And Bill, Bill yeah. Oddie was a famous British co- comedian, but he was also an, a birder. So he, he's still very well known for both being sort of a comic and a ambassador to birding in, in the UK. So, but most, most Americans, of course, have, you know, probably not heard of him. But, uh, yeah, but really it's, a lot book. of his stuff translates pretty like, and as you say, stringer is one, you know, part of, there's a couple of those terms that we've really adopted here in the U.S. as well. Uh, stringer, yep. for those who don't know, is somebody who is maybe, shall we say, a little over enthusiastic about what they report. I won't even say about what they see because it's a little difficult to take them at their word usually because yeah. they get so excited that they and, end up seeing what they want to see rather than what they may have actually seen. It comes from stringing you along essentially. Yeah. That's yeah. where the, the whole term comes from. Well, I think and so did that term out, come from, I was going to say, did that term come from that book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they used it, they used it in the British birding, but it sort of was on paper. The first time mm-hmm. I ever saw it and most people saw it on paper was there, that book. Right, sort of cemented it into the lore. Yeah, dipping out, twitcher, all those words mm-hmm. were the f- first time I ever saw them in print. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great book. It's a really good, good book. book. Hey, you know, George, one thing I should say, just in the same way that you know, um, nuance of all the things that are going on in today's world. One of the things that's that's been interesting for me is travel during COVID. You know. Um, which is, it, it's, it's complicated in many ways, you know, so you, you have um, issues of where you're going and what, you know, what the situation is there, what's going on at home and so forth. And um, fortunately, Spain is, you know, the COVID rates here are actually been really drastically dropping for the last month and a half or so. And it's really, um, doing well. In fact, it's got the highest vaccination rate of any large nation in, you know, in, in Europe. So it's, um, it's, we, we sort of saw it as a, as a a place where we could go and, and, and keeping to our bubble and eating outdoors and doing all the things that minimize your risk, not interacting with, you know, not going to nightclubs in Ibiza or something like that, you know, just, Oh, you guys aren't doing that on this trip? No, no, we, you know, we'd love to, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and you, you gotta, you, you, you know, you gotta be kind to your ears if you're doing birding the next day. So, you know, this is true. You, you gotta 
sometimes, but you know, there's vino here. We're, we're, we're having a good time. And there you go. It's, it's, it's interesting, you know, because it, it, um, people here are really happy to see birders and come, you know, we've, we've been staying at these little places where we're the only group staying there. You know, we fill up the place and essentially, um, have sort of the run as the place, but the, the, the staff, you know, just sort of happy to have us around and, and, you know, sort of be part of the, the economy in a sense. And like I said, you know, we're, we're doing things really in having to think a lot about what we're doing, which I hope is, is something that stays with us in the travel industry as we go forward. And, um, what I mean is, is there's, you, you always bring something to a place that you come to and you, you also affect that place when you go to it and, mm-hmm. and how we, how we do that in a positive way, right? So even when post COVID we're thinking about going to places like Colombia or wherever, what we're doing, does it bring some benefit to local people? How can we maximize the effect birding travel has on on you know conservation local people economies that actually are small scale economies that really sort of are helping to protect or at least uh, value the things that we value i think yeah. these are things that i've been thinking a lot more about you know going forward and especially traveling through this time, you just sort of start saying, huh, you know, we, we, we can't just go back to the same old way of travel. We have to think of how we're going to travel in a way that we all feel good about it. Not, not just as a, for ourselves, but what we provide to these places we go to. You know what I right. mean? So yeah. I think it's been a worthy thing to be traveling at this time for me, you know, just to think about some of this, because I've, you have to, to keep people safe and keep yourself safe and keep from having to worry that much. You want to plan out all sorts of things, but it, it went further for me as I was thinking, huh, how do we go forward from here? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I mean, there's that old expression, right? I think it was for the national parks was, you know, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints, but and that's that's more meant to indicate what you're supposed to leave behind in the wild. Um, you know, you don't want to be leaving trash. You don't want to be, you know, damaging um, habitat. But I do think leaving an increasingly positive uh, conservation footprint behind is something that really seems like is there's a, there's more and more. That, that that is being considered in a real way. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's a natural evolution to get to that place, but at the same time, you do have to be active about it um, in order to affect change. I mean, we, we ser- we've been doing it enough and we have enough partners all around the world that we know we know what tr- the travel business means, not to us, not just to us on, you know, before we leave and when we get back, but for the folks that we go and see their livelihoods and their ability to impact um, conservation measures uh, where they are. Um, yeah. And I, I do think, you know, more and more people want to know that they're leaving something behind that helps, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I think the, you know, when I've been to small little Caribbean islands, you know, that have very small populations and a huge cruise ship arrives and then people go out to, to see this country for four, four or five hours and all the taxis are, are being used and all the buses and all the restaurants are full and so on. And they leave a lot of money in the economy. But gosh, you know, it it just doesn't seem right. It's like they've, I'm not sure if they've left the place. I think they've not left the place better. <laughs> right. If, they, if, they, if that, they've run roughshod all over it, make them, you know, make a mess, leave a bunch of money. That's, it's better than not leaving any money, but it's it'd be nicer right. to 
have a more positive impact than that. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, everybody actually eats and does everything on the boat. They just maybe have some little day tours and that's it. Um, and you know, that's, that's not necessarily the way that, um, travel is going to change the world for the better, especially if you're a birder, right? You know, you, you want to be supporting the, the places, the ecologists, the small family run places, the, the, the bus companies or, or, or van operators who really deal with birders and they know the places and they know that their business survives because of birds and nature. And then therefore they're becoming more interested in the whole deal. And sure enough, they all become some of the best spotters too, right? You know, they're, yes, they're all always, the time. Seems like. And, and they enjoy life through nature in a way that maybe some of their city uh, you know, relatives w- would not, you know, and, and I think that's also a positive, that moment that somebody, you know, who's a, who's a, a driver and the- theoretically sort of a, a, a different player in the scene of the entire birding tour. And they're like pointing stuff out and they're, you know, wanting to look through the scope and, and they're seeing the beauty of all these things that, that's important because, you know, we get such enjoyment out of this. They're also going to get enjoyment out of this. And it's rightfully theirs to be able to sort of see this stuff as well. And, you know, it's, I always feel good about those situations. And I, I think, yeah, we have to almost make sure that our future travel is greater in that level of impact than it has been. So to even, even increase it if we can. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, um, because it's, uh, it's a new world. You know, we're not going to go back to the same old thing. Yeah. Everything's different now. That's one thing I think we can all agree on. And you gotta, you gotta face that and change and, and, and adapt. We all have to. Yeah. Um, Pelagics. yeah, man. Hold on. Yeah. Time to talk Pelagics. Pelagics. You've been out there. <laughs> you've been out on the yeah. Gulf. Uh, Gulf Stream. I was going to say Gulf Coast. Gulf Stream. Yeah. Yeah. I went off this past week, went down to North Carolina. I did two North Carolina pelagics um, with Brian Pattison, Kate Sutherland of Seabirding, and uh, was joined by a couple of good buddies and met a, some, met a bunch of cool people on the boat too, which was real fun. Man, it was hot. Like, it was hot. It was real, real hot. It's hot in Spain, let me tell you. It's hot. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. You guys, you got, you do Celsius there. So, what are you cresting 30 degrees Celsius? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. When we were looking at bustards up in Extremadura, it was, yeah, the, the Celsius meter was, was high. (laughs) (laughs) The Celsius meter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we, uh, well, probably similar. I mean, we were, we were about a hundred degrees. Um, and then of course, you know, when you're on the boat, uh, and you get out into the Gulf Stream, the, the water, the Gulf Stream water this time of year is over 80 degrees, sometimes well into 80 degrees. So it's, it's like, you know, it's one thing to have the sun beating down at you from above, but then to have the heat coming at up at you from below too, um, was, you know, remarkable, shall we say? Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you know, I went down there and and it was it was real calm. It was really really calm, which is you know that that's good in some ways. Uh, in some ways, you want you know a little bit of breeze to get the birds up and moving. But it was real calm, and I told the the night I arrived, I was talking to Brian, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'd really love to see some turns out there." And he's, and he's like, yeah, we might see some turns. We went out there and we saw a lot of turns. <laughs> like, I, in, in particular, I was thinking about tropical turns, you know, bridled and sooty turns. And, um, and there was no shortage of either one of those. And the coolest thing was that they were vocalizing a lot. Like, we were hearing them. Like, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard sooty turns a lot before, you know, on the colonies and the Tortugas. And at sea a little bit here and there too, but this trip, I mean, we 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 were well above a hundred one day uh, sooty turns, and almost all of them 
it was like an adult with one or two youngsters or two adults and a youngster following it around begging, you know, how turns do this time of year. Mm-hmm. And the, and the juvies are just so beautiful. They're just gorgeous with all their little scales and spots and every feather just perfectly in line. You know, the contours are really nice. The, the adults look a little beat up. They got some work to do molt to, uh, you know, replace some of the old feathers with some new, but they're still pretty sharp looking too. But, you know, we, we were picking up sooty turns by voice before we'd even see them out there, uh, which is pretty cool. And then we the, the first day, too, we had, I forget how many bridles. It wasn't as many as sooties, but still a good number, you know, a couple dozen or something. And, uh, and there was a youngster that was just flying around calling juvenile. And then the adult was calling, too. And uh, there was uh, a birder on board. Uh, named Sarah Toner, and she got some vocal. She recorded uh, these the interaction of the youngster begging from the adult, and and I was like, I think that was a life vocalization for me. And all of us talk about like life birds, but I'm pretty sure I'd never actually. I've seen a lot of br- bridal turns over the years, but I don't think I'd ever actually heard one vocalizing. And I went on later that night. And I looked on eBird, and there was just ten recordings ever in eBird for bridal turn, um, which is surprising. You would think somebody got to a colony and recorded a whole bunch at some point, but not really. Um, so there was like some Doug Pratt recordings from, you know, Hawaii area or not Hawaii or someplace in the tropical Pacific. But, um, but that was really neat. That was really, really something. And we did have a beautiful adult sappens go drop down on the water, just right in the sun glare and then pick up and fly off. We got, but everybody saw it pretty well. We had a nice juvenile long tailed Jaeger come winging in, which was cool. And, uh, and the black cap petrels were out there as they always are. The Diablotin as they call them. Yep. And, uh, one day we had about 50, 55 of them. So that was real nice. Not too many cetaceans out there though, really. Uh, I was envious of the ones you were seeing out there in Spain. We had some bottlenose dolphin real close and, um, and we did, uh, Kate Sutherland grabbed up a bunch of the sargassum weed out there and we picked that apart and found a bunch of little crabs and stuff, which was pretty neat because that's what the, re- you know, redneck foul ropes were all covering, covering up the sargassum weed out there and the Audubon Shearwaters like to hang by that as well. So it was fun to kind of go micro on that stuff. Um, oh, yes. So that was pretty neat. So it was, you know, always a fun experience out there. And this, this past weekend was, was another good one. So that was fun. I think I'm going to go back do like a little turn workshop with some folks. I'd like to go back down there because we had nine species of turns over the weekend and we, there was two or three more we could have gotten with a little bit of luck. So you could hit double digit turns down there without too much effort. Oh, wow. Yeah. Turns are, you know, what's the word? They're, they're tough. Some of them are really tough and underworked let's put it that way so the gulls get a lot of work you know and they're, yeah they're actually more they're tougher than turns in some ways because they hybridize and all this but turns are tough because a lot of people just haven't paid attention to them like, yeah you know if you really sort of were to talk about like okay why how many years does this turn take to mature or whatever or why do a lot of sandwich type turns have dark secondaries, even though they look like adults. And it's like that normal. Is that not normal? Is that are those two year olds? And there's a lot of stuff just even in the nuance. And then just the beauty of turns. Turns are good looking birds. Like they really <laughs> are. You yeah. Know, I mean, let's face it, they blow away a lot of the gulls. And I'm a gull. I would say so. And people, <laughs> you know, people tend to focus on the adults more. But I mean, you see a fresh juvenile sooty turn, completely sort of chocolatey brown with just these little like flecks of starlight white here, you know, mixed in at the tips of the feathers. And then you look at something like a juvenile least turn that is just this little tiny pygmy tropic bird with all those little scales running down the back, much less some of those sterna turns. Um, I mean, those, those are beautiful as juveniles as well. All those juveniles are just so handsome. Yeah, the, the young sooty turns look like that chocolate ice cream with marshmallows in it, you know? Yeah. Like that's that's yeah. the thing. That that's good, like. like Rocky Road kind of. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and and to me, it's weird that they're they're black. I mean, they're completely dark, and then they 
turn into something completely different when they're an adult. Usually, I mean, that that's unusual. You know what I mean? It, it yeah. Would, you know, I mean, you could sort of say, well, you know, herring gulls are brown and then they become gray and white. But it, I don't know. It's more striking with sooty tern. Uh, yeah, that's and, definitely one of the most confusing plumages for a lot of birders. A lot of people, they see that bird, they're like, is this a black tern? Is this a knotty? You know, whatever it is, their first net, their first guess is not sooty tern. They, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a little appreciated plumage and a really really handsome bird too. And you know, for those people who are sort of not in the know of these terns, and you probably haven't seen a, if you haven't seen a sooty or bridal, these are terns that essentially are only on land when they're breeding, and then the rest of the time they're out in the middle. You know, they're out in the ocean and. Sooty turns uh, th- that people think they do some actually pretty marvelous movements throughout the tropical ocean, you know, that are still sort of unknown in some respects. But it's it's a pleasure to also see them because they're just these true seabirds, pelagic birds, even though they're turns. They're related to things that we see on land all the time. Yeah, it was one of the funny things we saw was we saw sooty turn juvenile actually land on the water, just sit on the water in its belly for a while. We thought it might be actually a Jaeger at first in the distance. And we're like, oh my God, it's a, it's a juvenile sooty tern just sitting in the water. You know, they I've seen him do it before, but it's you don't see it that often, especially in any turn really. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I looking forward to, you know, getting back to our West Coast pelagics when I returned, because we're we're getting a lot of Arctic turns and you know, the common turns are going by and lots of Jaegers. So it's, uh, whew, I like good those. times. Good times. Yeah. It's not, it's not all just tube noses out there, people. That's, that's right. <laughs> plenty of, plenty of cool stuff to see. Wow. We should wrap up, man. I'll, in part, my dog is giving me the look like he might need to get out here pretty soon. Before we skedaddle, though, um, wanted to note that our partner, and producer Molly Brown was one of the guests on the American Birding Association podcast, uh, This their most recent podcast this past week. A really good listen. Uh, always over there, the American Birding Podcast, they do a good job. Nate Swick been hosting it forever and really puts on a show. And uh, and, and Molly uh, was a guest and, and really did a great job there. We look forward to getting her back on here again real soon. And, um, yeah, any last thoughts, Alvaro? Um, well, you know, out of the weirdest things I saw here in Spain, I saw the largest container ship in the world. Is <laughs> <laughs> sort of, you know, big nerd, nerdville, but yeah, I just thought serious. That, I've seen, I've seen ships, you know, I've, I've a lot of ships, but I looked at this thing and I said, man, that's a big ship. So I actually got online while we were sitting there and, and keyed it up. And, uh, it, it's actually only been in service since the 28th of July of this year. Like, so, so it was, it was juvenile plumage. And in fact, I was gonna say, it's like a baby still. Yeah. (laughs) It's a baby for all I know. It's it's maiden voyage. I don't know, but all the, it's, it was a green, it was one of those evergreen company things that they're all green and every yeah. single container on it was green. So the whole thing was green. You know, usually they're taking containers from everybody else. So they're all, but this thing was all green. It was like this big, huge green thing. And it is 399 meters long and it's, it's called the Ever Ace. And, um, I, you know, I don't know what to think. I'm kind of impressed. Uh, I think it is a, a good rarity to find, you know, just as a, yeah. you know, vagrant or whatever, although it was in, you know, transit <laughs> to Rotterdam. So, you know, you could have looked it up online and sat there waiting for it. But um, it, it also, you start thinking about, wow, you know, we get, you think about oh, larger ships, do we need this? But, you know, maybe a larger ship is actually more efficient maybe they're actually per pound of crappy stuff that they're bringing to other people, you know, (laughs) 
you know, all this useless yeah, stuff. Yeah, maybe it's better buy. than a bunch of smaller ones. Who knows? Maybe it's better. I don't know. I don't know. But um, I was impressed at the size of this thing, you know, and uh, crazy. So rare sighting. That's probably the last time I'll ever mention a ship on this. <laughs> and and it's it's made by Samsung, I found out. So like, those people make everything. God. Yeah, those guys, they're doing all right. Yeah, I know. I mean, can you imagine? They they probably make like underwear too or something, you know, like who knows? There's <laughs> probably some cakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Samsung underwear <laughs> is very popular with certain crowds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Cool, man. Well, that is good stuff. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Send us your thoughts. We love hearing from you. Take care. Be good out there, Al. All right. I will. We'll see some good stuff in the next few days, I hope. All right. Cheers. Cheers.